following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a blessing to be here with all of you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Russell Sigler. I serve on staff here as a director of student ministries. Um, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, then you'll know that right now we're looking through the book of Luke, specifically Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in Luke. Last week, Mike walked us through the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. This morning, we're actually venturing backwards in time. We're going to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 26. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you now to open them to Luke 9, verse 18 through 26. You can also follow along up on the screen behind me. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Can we pray with me? Holy Father, we are weak. We need you. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in our lives, we all have expectations, don't we? Expectations about all kinds of things all the time. When Derek and I go out to lunch and Derek picks the place, I usually have very high expectations. These are places with words on the menu that I do not understand and words that I cannot pronounce, but things that are always quite delicious. When Derek and I go out to lunch and he says, Russell, why don't you pick the place today? I imagine that Derek has very low expectations for the place that we're going to go. These are the kinds of places where you pay about 5 to $7 and you get to eat all the pizza that you want. They actually have a little arcade in the back so you can play air hockey whenever you're done. We have expectations, including expectations about Jesus. 
And in our text today, we'll see how the ancient Israelites had expectations for the Messiah. We have expectations about Jesus, and sometimes those expectations are a little bit off. We'll see that Jesus comes in a different way altogether. We're going to see how Jesus is the unexpected Messiah, and he requires an unexpected response. We're going to break those two statements up. We're going to take a look at each. So we'll look at first point one, the unexpected Messiah. If you look back at the text there in verses 18 through 20, the scene is set for us. Jesus, as he does from time to time in the Gospels, has drawn away, drawn away from the crowds, drawn away from the apostles, and he's praying. He returns looks around at his disciples, and, and he poses a question to them. He says, you guys, you have your ear to the ground. You know what's, what's going on out there. What do the people think about me? What are the crowds saying? And so the disciples respond with what would have been some of the common answers of the day. Well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Other people say Elijah, and still there's some other people who think that you're one of the other prophets of old who has risen. Then Jesus asks them a more pointed question. Jesus asks now to just the twelve, but who do you say that I am? What do you think about me? And of course, Peter, he speaks up. He's not afraid. He says, Jesus, we know who you are. And Peter gives the right answer. He says, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel. So the question is, what would Peter, a Jewish man living in this time period, have expected from the Messiah? Judaism at this time was actually a very diverse religion. Lots of different offshoots and belief systems, just like the Christianity of our day and age. But the historical record that we have gives us a very clear indicator that they had one common belief about who the Messiah would be. There's actually a text called the Psalms of Solomon, not the Song of Solomon, but the Psalms of Solomon. And this is a text that you won't find in your Bible because it was written by an unidentified Jewish man in around the first or second century B.C. And this would have been common at this time period for someone to write a book or a letter in the name of another man, a famous man, to give their ideas more credibility, more believability. And so the Psalms of Solomon, written about 100 to 200 years before Jesus, gives us a good idea of what the Jews would have expected from their Messiah. Here's what it says. See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel. In the time known to you, O God, undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles, to smash the arrogance of the sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the unlawful nations with the word of his mouth. He will gather a holy people, whom he will lead in righteousness, and he will be a righteous king over them, taught by God. There will be no unrighteous among them in his days, for all shall be holy, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. 
So what do we learn from this passage? There's a lot of expectations baked in here, aren't there? First, the Messiah will be a Davidic king, a king who will rule over his people. He's going to have great political power. Second, this is a king who is going to destroy Israel's enemies. He's going to purge Jerusalem from sinners and Gentiles. And third, he's going to rule over God's people in righteousness. Text tells us that he's going to gather the right kind of people around him, a holy people. So Israel was looking for their great conqueror, someone like Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great, who would come in and set the culture. This is what they wanted. So this is likely what Peter would have had in view when he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. What about us? What about you and I? Maybe we don't look to Jesus as a conquering king, but we certainly come to Jesus with expectations, don't we? We might not look for Jesus to be our political leader, per se, but we certainly are tempted to use Jesus as a political pawn, aren't we? Maybe you've said a statement like this or heard a statement like this. Well, if Jesus were around today, he would agree with, and then I just insert my political beliefs there, right? Jesus, he would have been on the left. Jesus would have been on the right. Jesus would have been in the middle. Jesus would have been disengaged altogether. We use Jesus to fit into our political ideology. The Jews thought that the Messiah was going to gather the holiest of people around him. And we think like this sometimes too, don't we? To be in church and to be a Christian, you need to look a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way. And if you don't fit that mold, then maybe you don't belong. Some of our beliefs about Jesus, about God, have a more distinct American flavor. Jesus wants me to be happy and fulfilled. This means that if I do what he wants me to do, then I will get what I want out of life. This is what's commonly known as the prosperity gospel, the idea that God helps those who help themselves. What about this? One last one. Really, what Jesus wants is for us to be good people, no matter how we do it. And Jesus is just one example of how to live a good life. We think about Jesus, and we think about all the things that he can give to us. We're quick to turn him into what's called a functional savior, a tool in the agenda of our lives. And these ideas actually aren't found anywhere in Scripture, and we see a completely different idea of Jesus right here in our text, the unexpected Messiah. Read with me, if you will, once again, verses 21 and 22. It says, And he, it's Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is an unexpected Messiah. 
He hasn't come to gather a righteous people around him. He hasn't come to to rally the troops against Rome. No. He tells the people, tells his disciples, don't tell anyone about Peter's proclamation that I'm the Christ. If this idea that Jesus was the Christ would have spread, it likely would have been misunderstood by the Jewish audience. There would have been a call to arms as they tried to make Jesus their king and overthrow Rome. This isn't the reason why Jesus came. Jesus makes it very clear why he came. And he tells them that his eventual arrest, torture, and execution will by no means be a mistake. This has actually been the plan for all of eternity. Not a mistake, but a divine necessity. Flip back with me, if you will, to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is in the Garden of Eden, right after Adam and Eve have sinned. God gave them a command. He said, there's, there's one tree that you shall not eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? They eat from it. They sin. And right there at the beginning of our Bible, we see this verse. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise, and you shall bruise his heel. Right here, the first announcement of the gospel the offspring of Eve who will come to make everything right, to right the wrong done in the garden. But, but this offspring of Eve must be bruised. Divine necessity. Flip forward, if you will, to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 4. The prophet Isaiah was looking for the Messiah, given a vision of what the Messiah would be like And as he looks forward to the Messiah, Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 7, he says this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led before the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, Israel is looking for the Messiah, but they're looking for a conquering king. And Jesus, the Messiah, has come as a suffering servant. This brings us now to our second point. We've seen the unexpected Messiah. Let's turn now to the unexpected response. Let's look briefly at verse 23 once again. Found it. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is a passage that, if we're honest with ourselves, is probably 
pretty hard to read. It's not a very fun verse to read, to hear, to walk the same path as Jesus and to live a life like him. I mean, this is a call to radical discipleship. This is not a call that we've heard anywhere in our world today. So what do we do with it? What do we do with these ideas? We'll take these two commands and we'll start first with deny yourself. Self-denial. I mean, could there really be a more countercultural message than this? We know the mantras, the mottos of our day, don't we? Things like, you do you. Follow your heart. Live your truth. Do whatever feels right to you. These are the things that we hear. What does Jesus tell us? Jesus tells us that the first part of following him, the first step in discipleship, is to deny ourselves and to leave ourselves behind. And I think most of us are okay to say, well, you know, that's fair, Russell. I've got some bad parts of me. Like, I mess up. I sin. Sometimes I'm impatient with my spouse or with my child. Sometimes someone else has something and I want it. And that's, those are bad things. Those are sins. And I need to leave those behind. I deny those as I follow Jesus. And that's good and that's right. But Jesus here is talking about far more than just the bad parts of us that we must deny. He's talking also about the things, in which, the things of which we are most proud of. And the Apostle Paul, he understood this idea well. Writing to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Friends, to deny yourself is to count everything you have as trash, as, rub- as rubbish, Paul says. To hold it with a completely open hand and say, God, all that I have and all that I am is yours. Second, Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily. And scholars agree that this command is meant to be taken both passively and actively. If you're not a grammar scholar, that's okay. I'll break that down for us. In a passive sense, this passage recognizes that suffering in our life, that hardship, is a given. Especially as Christians, each of us will have to deal every day with the effects of sin. We're surrounded by things like death and hurt and loss. As Christians... We might be looked at, looked upon as foolish for what we believe about Jesus and about the Bible. Perhaps we'll even be left out. In this passage, Jesus tells us that these things will happen. And as Christians, we must accept them, not ignore them, and accept them joyfully. This passage is also meant to be taken actively, though. One commentator, he puts, it simple, he puts it simply when he says this, Crosses, I have learned, are not only givens, they are also decisions. 
Friends, we must bend down and pick up our cross and become utterly dependent on Jesus. See, when the, when the disciples heard this idea, this idea of picking up their cross, they would have understood what that meant. See, living under Roman occupation, they would have seen something like this before, right? A man surrounded by a small group of Roman soldiers being forced to bend down and pick up his cross and being led out of the city. That trip that this man was going on was a one-way trip. Nobody would ever walk back through the gates of that city. And this is the image they would have had in their mind when Jesus told them to pick up their cross. The weight of our call as Christians today is the same. We're called to be on on a one-way trip, ready to follow Jesus. What does this look like? To follow Jesus in a life of taking his commands seriously. What would it look like if every Christian committed to actually loving their enemies and praying for those who persecute them? The people on the other side of the aisle from you, the political aisle, how much different would our public discourse be if we prayed for their needs as human beings, as image bearers of God, instead of thinking about how awful they are? Jesus' call to love the outsider, to love the widow, the orphan among you, what would it look like if we actually did that and went over to their house, or better yet, invited them to our own house and sat down and had a meal with them instead of just talking about how nice that would be? This is the call. This is the call on us as Christians to take up our cross. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and this doesn't sound very fun to you. This doesn't really sound like a good idea to you. And I get it. It's a very weighty call. But Jesus, he addresses that in verses 24 through 26. He'll read it for us. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus lets us know this isn't just good advice. He isn't here offering us a self-help manual, no. He's giving us a message with eternal implications. Our daily cross-bearing, our daily self-denial, they lead us to eternity, sure. Because Jesus knows that if we spend our whole life worried about the number in our bank account, or worried about the house that we live in, spend our whole life thinking about climbing the ladder at work, or climbing the social ladder, Whatever it is that we put our identity here in, here on earth, 
Whatever it is that we're clinging to so tightly so that we can't pick up our cross, all of those things, Jesus tells us that one day they'll all be gone. And one day, we're going to have to stand before the Lord our God and give an answer. So Jesus is sounding the warning siren. He's waving his arms at us, telling us, look, look into the future and consider your life here on earth. Because when we stand before God, a holy God, he will not ask us about any of those things. And I'll close this morning with this. I've talked a lot about carrying the cross, about the burden that each of us, that you and I, are told to take up as a follower of Christ. This is good and this is true, but hear me say something, that the cross is not just for carrying. There's a cross that we talk about that is not made for carrying, a cross that you and I can never carry. That is the cross of redemption. This is the cross where Jesus Christ, the suffering Messiah, took our sins and he died with it. That's what he did for us. The ultimate self-denial. Jesus is not asking us here to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. So we cling to the cross of Jesus. We cling to it so that we may bear our cross of discipleship. This is what the Apostle Peter wrote about when he says in 1 Peter 2, 24, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The same Peter who didn't get it. Peter who thought what he needed was a conquering king. No. Peter realizes that our only hope in this life and in the life to come is in the death and the resurrection of the suffering Messiah. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So yes, bear the cross of discipleship, but cling to it. Cling to the cross of Jesus. Because when you and I stand before God on that day of judgment, far be it from us that we walk up to the throne of a holy God, bearing our cross, and put it down in front of him and say, God, this is why I belong in heaven. No. Friends, our only hope to be allowed into the gates of heaven is to hide behind the cross of Jesus, to cling to the cross of Jesus. So cling as tightly as you can, because friends, that is our hope. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Holy Father, you are good. You are righteous and you are holy. God, all that we have is yours, and we pray that you would help us, you would lead us to a life of deeper dependence on you. God, help us to see you more clearly, to love you more, and to follow you. God, we pray all these things in your Son's holy and precious name, the one who took our sins away. Amen.